Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Just Cincinnati podcast. I'm just Stephen Byers, uh, one of the co-hosts of the podcast. And I'm Kyle Vath, uh, just another one of the co-hosts as well. You know, each podcast, we try to work to highlight some of the local injustices and amplify some of the work of those in the community. Well, today we are speaking with Dr. James Buchanan, and uh, we are honored to have him with us today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Buchanan. My pleasure to be here, Kyle. Well, um, let's start out by talking a little bit about your work and your organization and, and your, uh, your work here in Cincinnati. Uh, so maybe if you could start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll start there. Well, for, for the last 20 years, um, I have been at Xavier University and I was the founding director of the uh, Edward B. Brueggemann Center for Dialogue. Um, uh, as of January 1, 2021, I left that position um, to pursue other things, and now I'm director emeritus of, um, of that. In addition to that, I am uh, the chair of an organization called A Blessing to One Another, another organization called Interface Sensi, um, and then I serve on the boards of, uh, of a number of other nonprofits, both here within this region, nationally and internationally. Mm-hmm and that, that deal with a range of, of issues. I would, I would say that the, the essence of the work at the Brueggemann Center really carries forward into the work that I do in the organizations with which I'm connected now, which is that we really believe that in the power of collaboration. And so we work for a more just, uh, sustainable and equitable world uh, through collaboration and it's the the work is really creating these collaborative projects so you have your fingers in a lot of different work uh, not just in Cincinnati but uh, all over the world but specifically in Cincinnati I I would imagine that you have a a really unique purview to some of the injustices in our area um, that may be injustices around the world as well but specifically in our area um, that, uh, that uh, we could learn from. So from your purview, what are some of the injustices that you see in the greater Cincinnati area that you are most interested in and that you've devoted your time to over the past number of years? Well, I mean, we, we work, we work in, in areas from uh, the environment and sustainability. Uh, we work on racism and hate and hate speech and hate acts. We work on equity issues uh, of, of how do we how do we create uh, uh, bridges for the wealth gap that are going on. Um, I also work in, in foreign policy. And then one of the platforms that I use in this is, is interfaith, is trying to create interfaith collaboration. Interfaith Sensi and, and a, lot of, a lot of the work we do is part of a not necessarily a new, but a, but it's, it's an old but new kind of strategy to address social issues. And it really is based upon two things. One is creating networks. Everything works by networks. And if you can, if you can create really effective networks that then begin to work with other and interface with other networks, then you begin to create a very powerful voice and very powerful movement that can change things. Now, within networks, a lot of networks that as we imagine them are simply about dialogue and sharing information. What we do is we try to create collaborative networks, networks that are really geared towards action so that 
when I first began the Brueggemann Center, we did a lot of, brought in a lot of speakers and we had conferences and, and, and did that kind of work locally. Over the last probably eight to 10 years of the center's work, we would, we would not bring a, a speaker in or a, a conference in unless we felt like it had real direct impact in our community. How do we translate these things that we hear and that we read into action within our own community. And that, it, that making that move is the tricky move. That's the hard part. We believe that there's a real power in just collaboration. So the first thing you have to do is figure out what a network might be. Interface Sensi is a network that, our, as we stated in our mission statement, uh, building community through interfaith collaboration. And so what we're trying to do is not just let all of the faith communities become aware of each other, but to give them not only means, but resources to actually collaborate on issues that they share in common. So I, I've been involved in interfaith dialogue globally for a long, long time. And what I'm trying to do now is to build on that dialogue, to move to collaboration so that we begin to really see the differences that dialogue can make. Now, the differences in interfaith dialogue and interfaith collaboration is that dialogue always begins in difference, right? Where are we? And, how, and then we try to speak, talk our way into commonalities. If you're collaborating, you begin with what you have in common. You have in common issues. You have in common the values that have made that an issue and really demand of you that you address it. And we share a city, we share a community. So with collaboration, we begin to not focus on differences, but focus on what we have in common. And when we return to dialogue, which we do, we find the conversation has changed. So the real key to something like Interface Sensi is not merely leaving it with the interfaith community, but then figuring out how that network can interface with the business community and with the government and with the nonprofit sectors that are working on these things and how we as an interfaith community can really add our voices to the work that is already going on and really become a kind of moral fabric for the community. And I, it, 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 is, it is in that cross-sectoral collaboration, that's where it really gets tough is the cross-sectoral collaboration. It's only through that cross-sectoral collaboration that we really can address these issues systemically. All the issues, environment, racism, equity, um, whatever that we have, they're homelessness, name it, they're all systemic issues. And we tend to peck away at them um, in, in, bit by bit as opposed to really trying to take them on systemically. And if you're going to take them on systemically, you need all the various sectors of the community interacting together. So what we try to do at the Brueggemann Center and what I try to do in my current work is to be the connective tissue. I try to be the bridge between these. I've had to learn to speak economics. I've had to learn to speak politics. I've had to learn to speak various nonprofits and to learn about all of the different things that people are working on because one of the difficulties we often have with cross-sectoral work is just translation. 
people don't understand the language that other people use. The economist can barely talk to somebody in the nonprofit sector, can barely talk to somebody in the political spectrum and so forth. So how do you how do you create modes in which they actually can find that common ground and then begin to say, we don't have to collaborate on everything, but let's collaborate on this. It's in a way, it's like a Venn diagram, right? And so you end up with a common area and, and just focusing on that common area allows you to do something together. And once you do something together successfully, that leads to more action. That leads to people wanting to work together again in the future. You know, it's easy to to sit back, you know, at, at home or or in our office or you know, sit in our armchair and and think about all the, the various areas of injustice that uh, that you are trying to to address here. How exactly do you motivate folks to move from the armchair into action and get involved? Well, I mean, the first thing I think is that because these issues are so big and systemic, they often feel overwhelming. How do we deal with racism? How do we deal with equity? How do we deal with the environment? How do we deal with the refugee and immigrant crisis, et cetera? So rather than than taking it on all at once, what you do is you take it on a bit at a time. We talk about baby steps, doing doing small things together. Uh, One one of the things that I'll always, when I'm in on these task forces and other things that I'm part of, and we always do these introductions. And who are you and why are you here is always the question. And my answer to that had always, has always been James Buchanan, director of the Brueggemann Center for Dialogue at Xavier. And I'm here to see if we can move a single bar, a single inch together. And every part of that is crucial. Can we, can we find something we can do together? Not change the world, but can we change some little thing together? Because unless you can do the inch, you can't do the foot. Unless you can do the foot, you can't do the yard. Unless you can do the yard, you can't do the mile. And people often start with the mile. And, and thinking, if you, if you look at it in terms of the mile and the 30,000 foot view of it, it's too big and it's too complex and it's too overwhelming. So what we do is we take on small projects and we try to build on those. And we'll stay with it. But you, have to, you have to be very tenacious with this. Um, Two of the organizations that, uh, that I'm involved with, Refugee Connect and um, the, the Immigrant and Refugee Law Center. Refugee Connect, we started doing work on, on refugees almost 16 or 17 years ago. And it began very simply. We just, some, one of my students uh, wanted to work on refugees and said, well, what's the refugee situation in Cincinnati? Well, we found out nobody really knew. Catholic Social Services at the time, now Catholic Charities, was the resettlement agency, but nobody really had a good sense of how many refugees and asylees we actually had. So we tried to do an inventory on that. And then we began to say, well, what's going on with these communities? What do they need? What are the gaps in in their lives? And we began to do that. And And then eventually the Junior League approached me and they wanted to work on this. And we began to work together and out of that emerged Refugee Connect. But that process was a 10 year process. So part of the thing that that your listeners and people in the community have to realize is there are no quick fixes. If, if, if you really are not going to be in this for the long haul, don't get in it at all. Just send some money because this is this is this is slow work. It's frustrating work. Um, you, you have you have constant setbacks 
in, in, in what you're doing. But if the issue is significant enough and important enough to you to be engaged with, then you need to say, I'm going to stay with it. I'm going to stick with it. So, so we, we, what we try to do, Stephen, is we really try to do, we start small and then we build on that. And as we do that, if you have a success at the inch, then people are excited. Then they'll do the foot and then they'll get excited again. Then they'll do the yard and so forth and so on. And it's really creating a kind of temperament and atmosphere where people feel not only engaged and participatory, like they really are accomplishing something, but there really is a kind of hope in even accomplishing the small things. Can you give us some other examples of some some projects, some baby steps uh, that that you've taken together with other organizations like the Refugee Project? Can you give us a few examples? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the other one with that is the Immigrant and Refugees Law Center, um, which has been very, very successful and has has really helped over five to six hundred refugees with the, the sort of complex legal situation that they're dealing with. And, and that started out with somebody coming to me and saying they wanted to start it and would I help them start it? And we began that. And and all these people, the director of Refugee Connect and the director of the Immigrant Refugee Law Center, these are people you need to have on your show because they can really address the work that they're really doing in the trenches, uh, more or less. Um, the, the other ones are, are things like the, the regional, the Cincinnati Regional Coalition Against Hate. Well, after Charlottesville and after a series of events that, that had happened even locally, 19 different organizations representing 19 different communities who had experienced levels of hatred or, or had, had been attacked by one group or another, we all came together to really form the coalition against hate. Now, the idea behind this is that when there's an anti-Semitic act, why is that just a Jewish problem? When there's a racist act of hatred, why is that just an African-American problem? When there's some an Islamophobic act, why is that something for just the Muslim community to deal with? When there's an LBGTQ person who's attacked, why is that just their problem? Any of those attacks in our own sense of, of, of the community is an attack upon the whole of the community. It, it tears us all down because it tears at the fabric of who we are and who we actually want to be. So the Cincinnati Regional Coalition Against Hate has been has been formed. And, and that now is a, we've just hired an executive director. That's another one that's been in existence for five years. And we've just this week, literally this week, hired an executive director to run it. So again, the slow baby steps of trying to keep all of these people who all have their own issues, their own problems, their own sort of concerns, and are not necessarily really concerned about what's going on for somebody else, to try to get them to work together to see that we do have a common purpose, that we do share a community, that when they're attacked, that's an attack against us all. When the other people in the coalition are attacked, that's an attack against all of us. And then the question is, what can we do about it together? How do we, how do we work together to make our community one that is safer for all of those groups, one in which our children get educated about what is going on so that they do not get co-opted into these hate systems that, that uh, are, are wandering around, around the country right now. And it allows the people 
within the organization, again, to feel stronger about what they're doing because they have the support of all these other groups. Um, another one is, is uh, in the sustainability work. The great organization here in town that does that work is Green Umbrella. Um, it, it is, an, it is a, again, a, an organization that really believes in collective action. Uh, it has a numerous impact teams that it has put together that work on a variety of issues from, from uh, waste disposal to energy to um, everything you can imagine. One of the things that we formed within that is, is a, a, an impact team called Faith Communities Go Green. So I, and I'm co-chair of that. And what we're trying to do within that is to how do we activate and motivate the religious communities to really begin to live care for creation. It's part of the theology of all of the religions, right, of care for creation. But what are we doing about it? How do, how do you go about um, making your building more energy efficient? Um, how do you go about what, what, what should be the, 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 the stance of your congregation about single-use plastics? What should be your, the state of, of yours about, about uh, environmental justice? That Again, this equity question of the people that are hardest hit by environment and pollution are always the poorest people. What do we do about that? And how can we be a resource to each other? So we're creating tool toolkits and we're creating webinars and we're creating resource packages. And, and we, we've already got we've already got about over 100 people involved in this, representing probably 30 to 40 congregations. And, and again, this is something that has just begun. This is really only about a year to a year and a half old. But that is now has been taken in as part of Green Umbrella. And so we're, we're, we're a part of that. And again, the, the key to it is collaboration. How can we work together? So when we have a meeting, it's really interesting because you'll have, you'll have some Christians, that may mean Catholics and Protestants and even evangelicals. And you'll have, you'll have members from the Jewish community, the Muslim community, Baha'i, Buddhist, Zoroastrians. I mean, all of these people coming together and discovering we do have something in common. Climate change and climate crisis is a crisis that is an equal opportunity crisis. In effect, it affects us all. And how do we, how do we then begin to become an important voice in our community in terms of trying to address that? So the, uh, probably the, the other one would be the work within an organization called Equation. And I'll stick all these up, um, the, the websites and stuff up in the chat for you so you can go to that equation, um, we started out really as a very simple dialogue between Muslims and Jews after 9-11, just here and really going, just having dinner with each other and getting to know each other, making each other human, as opposed to reacting to the stereotypes that we find in the media and the stereotypes after 9-11 were not good. They were very harsh stereotypes, but putting a human face to it, it eventually expanded to be a trialogue between um, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. That then grew into a thing called Bridges of Faith, and that then now has morphed into something called Equation. And Equation now has sponsored this. We're, we'll be doing it for the, uh, for the uh, fourth year this year, this in, in, in August, the Festival of Faiths. And what, we, what we're doing with that 
is two things. One is trying to bring the faith communities together. So the last time we held it live, which was 2019, was held at Centos Center at Xavier. We had close to 3,000 people from 13 different world religions all represented there. And it was just uh, William James once once called um, uh, interfaith and, and interreligious dialogue, a buzzing, blooming confusion. And believe me, 3,000 people from all those communities was a buzzing, blooming confusion, but a beautiful one. And probably, in, in, at least in my time in, in Cincinnati, clearly the most diverse collection of people that has ever gathered in Cincinnati. And all with an openness to each other, to learning about each other, to meeting each other, to forming connections with each other. The, the mission statement of the Festival of Faiths is compassion through action. Not just compassion, but that this demand that we put that compassion, which is at the heart of all the religions, we have to put it into action. So prior to COVID, we were doing things like habitat builds together which is amazing. I mean, you get a bunch of, 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 of Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Zoroastrians working on a house. It's not only fun and meaningful, it's funny. Because what we find is we're all equally bad at, at, at using a hammer or putting up sheetrock or, or doing this work, but we all really share the joy of how we're contributing to our community. And, we, and we're, we're as, as we move out of COVID, we'll be doing uh, one house that the interfaith community will take on with, with Habitat all by itself. And so those are, those are some examples that are going on in the community um, that where we are making progress and all of that progress is being made because we have created networks. And those networks are networks that are not just talking about the issues, but really collaborating on trying to find solutions in small ways and big ways um, to, to, to address the issues. I had the honor of being at the last in-person Festival of Faiths. And to your point, I, I had the chance to sit in with the um, prayer service, the, the multi-faith prayer service. And as you said, it was one of the most eye-opening and beautiful things I've ever been a part of, uh, in all honesty, uh, faiths I had never even heard of, some of them, um, that I didn't even know were represented, re- represented in our community. And I got to hear beautiful prayers for peace and justice and um, healing in our, in our city. And so if anyone's listening to this, uh, I'd highly recommend going to the next one. I'm assuming there will be one. It will again. be uh, August, August, the week of August 21st, we'll be doing uh, um, it virtually again this year, just out of safety for the community. We'll hopefully get back to, we hope to, to being live again, the, the, the year in 2022, but August 21st during that whole week, and you can go to the Equation website, and again, I'll make that available for, um, it's E-Q-U-A-S-I-O-N dot O-R-G. Okay. And, you'll, and under there, you'll find the Festival of Faith. And there are many things that are going on with, within that. We, we've done visits to the various houses of worship, and people go around. We, we did that physically for uh, uh, until COVID, and then we've done it virtually. We're doing a thing called Compassionate Conversations. Um, in, in which we're coming together and letting people really talk about the issues that are important in their lives 
and in a, in a kind of directed dialogues uh, with with uh, um, with people leading those groups. So within Equation, that's become a, a major thing. Working, partnering with Interfaith Sensi have become uh, the major players in, in the interfaith world here in town. What are some of the more surprising or interesting collaborations that have occurred through all this that you've witnessed? Well, one, one of the new ones, which is, I think is very powerful, um, which I've, I've been working on even as recently as this morning, is in the, in the uh, fall and October of this year, we're going to, we're, we're trying to address the issue of affordable housing, but we're not, but we're not addressing it just as affordable housing, but really the core systemic issue, which is the wealth gap, which means that we have to address the issue of home ownership. So the, the, the statistics in Cincinnati are that among the black community, only about 31% of the black community own their own homes. And in the white community, about 73% own their own homes. There's the wealth gap right there. The single greatest indicator of wealth or contributor to wealth for most of us is going to be a home purchase. It's usually the largest thing we'll ever buy. And it's, it's where, we, where we have the opportunity to create some version or degree of wealth. Well, that 73 and 31% is, is a gap in wealth and the potential to even generate wealth. So we're, we've issued, a, we've, we've uh, invited Marjorie Fudge, who's the new secretary of HUD, Housing and Urban Development, to be our plenary speaker at this. And we'll be bringing in national experts, plus all of the different groups. There's about nine or 10 different groups working on affordable housing here in town. Well, we've got them all working together on this. And, and they all agree that they're all, they're all basically doing affordable housing in the ways that we typically do it. Uh, about 90 some percent of affordable housing is just rental housing. But they all agree that home ownership is the core issue. And how do we how do we bring the banks into this so that they'll we can create financial packages? Uh, how do we educate the population that we all are better off if we can allow these paths to uh, to develop for wealth to develop among those who don't have it? And it takes the burden off uh, the social safety nets. It, the, these people become our our better neighbors. Um, plus the fact we're living in a democracy and a democracy has to be something that not only is open to dialogue across these, these gaps, but it has to be an economic democracy. We can't, we can't live in a world where our eight top billionaires have an accumulated net worth equal to 50 per, the poorest 50% of the global population or 3.4 billion people. That's just, there's something fundamentally wrong about that. And, and those of us who are lucky to lucky enough to be among the upper middle classes and, and have those benefits, we need to find ways that we can provide those same opportunities for others. And one of the key ones is home ownership. So we're, we're very excited about this one. And, and we had a, a meeting of the group yesterday, and I've been on, on calls today about it. And it's really going to come together, I think, very well. And going to not only have local and regional significance, but we hope become part of a national uh, movement that, that is going on. Because this, out of, this is something that has been named a priority within the Biden administration. Now, will they put their money where their mouth is? Uh, will they help us create financial models 
right. I don't know if either of you uh, own and I, and I speak this to anybody who's listening, any, any of us who have ever bought a house know how insanely complicated it is to just go buy a house, how many hoops the bank put you through. Well, that's, that's available to us who are in the middle class and who have, some kind of financial capacity, but for people of the lower socioeconomic classes, it's almost impossible. And part of that is local banks. Part of this is that local financial institutions have to provide, go by the, the rules that are provided by Fannie and Freddie, which are the big mortgage brokers at the federal level. And, and so there's, there's a systemic issue in the whole infrastructure that does not allow for something like home ownership to develop. And if we don't address home ownership, we can never address, really address the equity gaps and the wealth gaps that exist within our society. So we're very excited about that one. That's, that's a good one. Um, I, I think that um, we, we are one of the things that we've done within the Refugee Connect community is we've created, we're creating a series of navigators. So you have to let your mind imagine the world of a refugee or an asylee. An asylee is a, basically the same thing, but let's just take the refugee. The refugee has gone through level after level of traumatic events in their life. First of all, whatever happened in their home country that led them to be a refugee. Now, a refugee is somebody who's been driven out of their land, out of their home, home country because of political social, environmental, whatever reasons are going on there. So something horrific has happened in their home country and they've ended up in a refugee camp. They end up staying in that refugee camp on average six or seven years or more until it is determined that there's no hope for them going back to their home country. And then they go through a very complex process in which they're vetted over and over by multiple agencies, the UNHCR, High Commission on Refugees, and then also by national governments to be relocated somewhere. And one of the places they come is to the United States. Then they're vetted again, and it's determined where they go in the United States. So they walk off a plane here in Cincinnati with everything they own in a suitcase, having lived through multiple levels of trauma. There's the trauma of their home country. I don't know if you've ever been in a refugee camp, but they're not very pleasant places to be. And now they walk into this world of complexity and how do they deal with it? And those were the gaps we found when we looked at the refugee community. So what the model we've come up with in Refugee Connect is navigators. How can we create a, 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 a whole kind of group of navigators often drawn from the refugee communities themselves? So we train them, we help them learn, become professionals, and they then become the liaisons when people in that community need help figuring out, well, one of the projects we did was a health navigator. I mean, we can't figure out the health system. I can't figure out the health system. How can somebody who's come from a place where they did not really even have a health system, they may have had a clinic and a nurse or something like that, how do they navigate the world of general practitioners and specialists and, and trying to figure out where to go in children's hospital or Christ or, or one of those things. Well, we, we did a grant with, with children's hospital and, and did a, a, created a model for a pediatric health navigator who, where we train people 
not only how the system worked, but how children's hospital worked. And then they also became a medical translator, which is you have to have a certificate, meaning they could go right into the doctor's office with the people from the refugee community. And at the same time, they become the educators of their community, teaching them how to do this, how, how these systems work. Not whether it's the healthcare system, whether it's the immigration system, whether it's the job system, whether it's housing, how do they get tutoring for their kids? So this cadre of, of, of navigators that we're putting together in Refugee Connect really become the liaisons, which, are, which give this really this community that has lived through things that we can't even imagine. It gives them a shot at the American dream. And, and so we, we just we find this very hopeful in terms of what's going on, because we hear the stories. And again, they're not massive, major stories, but we hear the stories of a family and, and, and of groups of people of where we've really made a difference in their lives and where they pass that on into their own community, thus making a difference in their lives. And thus you begin to have systemic change. You know, sometimes. Uh... I would say recently uh, faith communities have, have uh, not always had the greatest reputation of working for justice. And um, you know, some might argue, some might be listening to this and say, you know, religion is actually the the problem. The, the, the faith uh, communities are actually what are dividing us. Um, and there's probably some truth to that in some ways. Um, but I, I, would imagine that you would um, have a different perspective on that or, or would, would share some, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that of, of someone who would say religion is actually just the problem. Um, how is religion and faith communities of faith going to actually be part of the solution? What would you say to them? Well, no, no one who studies religion would deny what that characterization of religion that has been part of the religious world. I mean, from the crusades to, um, the spread of Islam through what what goes on with the Buddhist and 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 the Muslims right now and in, in, in parts of the world firmly and strongly held beliefs that really are not accepting of the other of anything that's other than that than, than that belief system can become a powerful motivator for conflict and a powerful motivator for hatred um, and. So, so I wouldn't deny any of that, but I would also say that religion also is responsible for a great many of the good things that happen in our world. If you look at who really has cared about um, racism, right, for example, um, those were, that was the religious communities that really have, have uh, stepped up to that and are doing it. And we're, we're doing that here. We have within Equation, we have a new project called A Mighty Stream, which is a, taken from a, a speech of Martin Luther King. And we're trying to bring, trying to figure out how we can activate the religious communities to working together on, um, on racial issues. So, so, so that it's absolutely true that, that there, there's always going to be there are always going to be faith communities who are not willing to engage with other faith communities and who really are not looking outside of their own community um, to, for interaction, for dialogue, for collaboration, for community. Uh, most of these are fundamentalist. Most of these are, are strong evangelicals who are not open to, to that kind of thing. But we have found 
at least evangelicals, not necessarily fundamentalists, but we've certainly found evangelicals who are certainly open, uh, more open to a dialogue. Now, it gets very tricky because if you take something like the 19 organizations that are within the Cincinnati Regional Coalition Against Hate, there's they're going to be faith communities that really want to have nothing to do with the LGBTQ community, right? Well, what do you do with that? You say, fine, that's all right. Come and work with us on this, what you do agree upon. If you agree about the environment or refugees or where, where, where can we find common ground? It, we don't have to agree on everything. We just have to decide what we will agree upon. And those are the things that we can work on together. Um, we also then begin to work uh, against those faith communities or who are those communities that use faith as a justification for conflict and hatred and ostracization and, 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 and activities that really we find to be contrary to the fundamental beliefs of all religions. And, and so to have the interfaith community and particularly members of a faith community of which those fundamentalist communities are part to say, that is not our belief system. That is not what we, uh, the way we have chosen to live our lives. Um, and so that also helps those communities because, I mean, the Muslims, for example, have get branded all as terrorists because of a small percentage of the Muslim world. The Muslim Americans that, that we know and that we work with are good, solid, middle-class American families with strong family structure, strong values who work in the community, not only in the Muslim community, but work in the broader community. Um, the, 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 certainly within the Christian and even the Baptist and Methodist and Protestant, and some of those become quite evangelical and quite fundamentalist, but there are other, there are other sectors of those, those traditions that are very open to communication and dialogue and collaboration. So I think it's a balancing act. I think that you, to, to deny that that, that religion has been responsible for many and it continues to be responsible for many horrendous things. And you can't say that's not the real religion because nobody gets to have the claim on what is real and what is not real about religion. If somebody is doing those kinds of actions, if, if somebody takes the, the concept of jihad out of Islam and thinks of it as out, out and out war against against the infidels, as opposed to jihad as we really understand it within Islam, which is a spiritual quest. Well, we can't deny that they're, that they're, they're acting out of some kind of religious purpose. They are, but it's one in which we disagree with. And it's one in which we would try to engage them in dialogue on. We would try to bring them into some of the activities that we're working on. And maybe, maybe they have a change of mind or a change of heart. That's all we can hope. So I, I, don't disagree, I, I don't disagree with that. It's just that we work on the other side of that because it, is, it does work in both ways. What was the, uh, you, I think we, you kind of covered this a little bit, but what was the one, what were the little steps that led you to, to, to getting involved in what you're doing. You know, you, you talked about earlier about how, you know, just takes, you know, instead of taking the 30,000 foot view, you know, just do the, do the short steps. What was that 
what were those things to go, for to, you? go to go back to the the the, the refugee one for example mm-hmm. and that 16 years ago when we just sort of did that inventory to find out our census uh, to find out how many refugees we had and we we came up with about 15,000 the number's probably somewhere between 25 and 30,000 or or even more because we get a lot of secondary refugees as well so once we found that then then i i felt compelled to go out and meet some who are they where were they and and once you once we did that then they would tell us what their problems were what was going on in their lives and we found out that some of the problems were fairly easy to address they just did they lack the resources for that and and we would do it and then we began to say well who in the community is doing anything with refugees Right. And so here we begin the network building. And so we began to reach out to every, anybody who was touching the refugee community in any way. And we, we created a program called the Refugee Empowerment uh, Initiative. And that was a thing where we invited any, anybody in any group who was working with refugees to come to Xavier on a quarterly basis. And we would meet at the CentOS Center and we would share our stories. And we would share the work that we were doing. And the revelation, the baby steps are things such as somebody, say, from St. Leo's who work with the Burundi would say, one of the problems we're having with our, our refugees is this. And somebody sitting across the table from them that they don't even know says, that's what we do. They exchange cards. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a small solution for this one community because we've made a connection that grew to about 30 or 40 organizations. It now has grown to over a hundred organizations that are networked within refugee connect so that we at refugee connect can, when a refugee or a refugee community is having a problem, we don't necessarily have the solution, but we know where to go. We know where to send them. And, and, and that, you know, doing that, when you think that that started the first time we had the Refugee Empowerment Initiative, five groups, that's what it was. That's the baby step. Five groups. Well, those five groups, they knew some other people and they thought this was a good idea. And the next time we held it, we had 15 people, 15 organizations represented. The next time we did it, we had 30 organizations represented. And the next time, 50 and, and so on and so on, till finally it's, a, it's, it's about 100 different organizations. And, and we at Refugee Connect really want to play the connective tissue with our navigators to, to do that. But, they, but, but it began with, with an idea, sending a, an email out and saying, come to Xavier and let's just brainstorm together. And a lot of this is just brainstorming. I mean, it really, it really requires with, with systemic problems and systemic solutions. One of the things that you have to realize is that your solution is never the one that is really going to the one you're going to get if you're working with a collaborative within a collaborative group, because you have to listen to everybody. I've done I'm sure hundreds of collaborative projects because the Brueggemann Center over, over the 20 years of the Brueggemann Center's life, we never did a project alone. We literally collaborated on everything we ever did. And so I would walk into a, a, a meeting on a project with some idea of what I wanted the project to be. And by the time we had invited all the people around the table, what emerged out of that was never what I had in mind. 
But, but what we got was process, good process. And so a lot of the focus, and I think a lot of the baby steps have to do with creating good participatory process. I always say I, I teach systems theory. And one of the things that I say is process is product. That if you, you, you think about the product that you want, and if you're so focused on that, that you don't have good process, you'll get something like that product, but people will not be willing to work with you again because you'll have just simply dominated it. But if you have that good open process, whatever that product is, the real product is it, is those people want to work with you again. So we always, we always measured our success uh, at, the, at the center, at the Brueggemann Center, with whether people wanted to come back and do projects with us again. And I think that's what we're trying to do within Refugee Connect. That's what we're trying to do with Interface Sensi, Equation, all of them is good open process so that we don't, we don't necessarily accomplish big things, but accomplishing open process may be the big thing that we're actually accomplishing. You know, you've been a part of the, these organizations, leading these organizations and a part of this type of work for decades now. Um, but, you know, to go back even further from these baby steps to even further, um, you know, there was a point in your life where you were not, you know, at the top of these organizations or so deeply involved in these communities. Maybe tell us a little bit about what got you into that role, you know, going back, whether it's your uh, some of your foundational years or experiences that you had that really made you want to start to look at things like this. Well, you know, I, I grew up in the South so that the, the, the first issue for for us was was the racism. And, and we got involved in the civil rights movement. And it was, it was controversial to, to do that at the time, but it was just something that seemed right. Um, for, for me, I, you know, it, it, it's odd how you get into these things that um, I, I, because I played sports and I played team sports, I, I was constantly, I was with uh, um, African-Americans and with people from other races doing that. And so I knew them as people. Uh, they weren't stereotypes and, and so forth. So we got involved in that. And then, and then I was also part of the generation of Vietnam and, and that, that, that whole era of late sixties and, and seventies, I think it, it, it really, um, it changed almost all of us um, in, in some ways, because we, we saw in, in very real ways, because there was a draft, right. It, it had direct impact on us. Right. We saw in very direct ways of, of what the what the ramifications were of these wars all over the world and what, what was the point of them. And and we were I mean, I, you know, I was studying at Yale at the time and the, the we we studied it. We looked at it. Why were we doing this? Why were we in Southeast Asia and and, and being involved there? And we didn't agree with it. And we and we became protesters against that. And I think. Once you once you're on that path, then you're always going to be on that path. And even though in my academic life as a teacher and as a writer and other things, you have to maintain a level of objectivity and distance from the activism. There's a lot of activist professors who take their activism right into the classroom. I don't. I disagree with that. My approach in the classroom was present both sides teach the students how to think critically 
and let them decide. I don't care if somebody disagrees with me about an issue. I just want them to do it thoughtfully. I want them to do it with reason, not just the sort of knee-jerk way we're doing it currently in the United States, that people have, where, where truth has disappeared as, as even something we can talk about because, because truth is anything anybody says at any given moment if I want to believe it. And I don't, I don't demand facts. I don't demand anything to back it up. I just say, well, this is what I believe. Therefore, this is what it is. And it's a very dangerous point in, in our society that we are there. Well, we, we saw that with the Vietnam era as well. There was a, a lot of, of what, what Huxley called doublespeak. There was a lot of, of, uh, of truth-making that we saw as really false. And, and, we've, and, we, and you begin to see that as, as something that characterizes our whole society is at one level. That voice is always there. And so it really becomes something that you're constantly fighting against. And, and in the classroom, the way you fight against it is you teach people to think. Our job, our job as, in, 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 as educators is not to teach students what to think. It's to teach them how to think. And, and we want them to come out of a place like Xavier as thoughtful people. And, and what they do with that thought is fine, one way or the other, as long as that's there. But once you're engaged in that level, I don't think you can, you, you don't really have any choice about it. It really becomes something that you, that you just become engaged with. And you can't sit back and look at the injustices. You can't sit back and look at the crises in which we're involved. How can we sit back and say the climate crises is not something that's relevant? One, one of the things that I'll often say when I'm doing environmental talks is that the real environmental crisis is that in the 30 plus years that I and many others have been doing this work, we haven't convinced the population it's a crisis. Because if it was a crisis, we'd be changing our lives. If somebody tells you you have a medical crisis, you don't say, let me wait 30 years and see what's going to happen. If you have a financial crisis, you don't get to wait 30 years to see what's going to happen. You have to respond to it. We can't seem to convince people this is real. 99% of all the science says it's real. Uh, we know it, but how do we do that? So I, I just think once, once you begin to, once your eyes are open, you can't close them again. And, and that, that has led me into some very strange paths that I, I, I mean, I never thought, I, first of all, I never thought I would end up in Cincinnati. My, my life was Yale and Chicago, and then I, I studied in Moscow, and I studied in Paris, and I studied in China, and lived in China for many years, nine years, and lived in Europe for five. <coughs> I never thought for a minute that I would end up in Cincinnati, and I came down here as an endowed chair in ethics, religion, and society, expecting to stay a couple of years and then move on because I'd just come back from living in Asia for, for many years. And they offered me the opportunity to create the Brueggemann Center, and I did. And I found that that was a, a vehicle that I could use to do this kind of work, that the university was, and particularly a university like Xavier, which is a, a university that is based on values. Right. That that I could I could really do that work. And so the Brueggemann Center really became 
one of the main bridges between Xavier and the community. And once you become involved in the community, the issues just emerge. They're there in front of you and you, you can't close your eyes to them. What do you, and so what do you do about them? You have to do something. And so what we were fortunate enough because we're the, the center has an endowment and, and everything, we were fortunate enough to really be a catalyst and to, to help roll out a number of these uh, nonprofits and, and help, them, help them get started. And I think that was an appropriate role for the university as well as becoming a center for public discourse on the issues. And so it just, all this stuff happens gradually, but at a certain point, you just don't have a choice. Once your eyes are open, you can't, you can't unsee it. You can't unhear it. And then the question is, do you just go back into your own little enclave and hide there from it? Or do you become engaged? And then you have to figure out what that level of engagement is. Well, this is amazing information, and I'm sure a lot of people will really be inspired by this. I, I heard one thing over and over very clearly that we have to have collaboration to address systemic issues, and it's it's not going to work if we do anything else but that. And so thank you for being an example of that and for leading so many uh, uh, organizations and doing just that. Uh, you know, if someone is inspired by some of these things and wants to be a part of, of any one of these works for bringing about a more just Cincinnati, what, what would you tell them and where would you direct them to, whether it's your work or different organizations work? Uh, what, where would you? I, I think the, the thing to do is to you find out what your issue or issues are. What, what do you care about, first of all? And then secondly, um, find organizations, nonprofits in the community that are doing that. And go test the waters. Go see if uh, um, um, this or that organization is the one you want to be involved with. But we, I mean, we we live we live in a in a democratic society, and part of what living in a democratic society is entails is the is the demand that we really do engage in community. A civil society is really based upon that kind of engagement. There, there's a book by um, uh, Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone uh, that I'm sure some of your audience will have read. And, and his, his point was that somewhere over the last 60 or 70 years, we lost this kind of collaborative um, ideal uh, that, that is, is really the key to civil society. The, the idea of bowling alone, there used to be bowling leagues and sewing leagues, and we used to do all of these things together. And increasingly, we became more and more individualistic in what we're doing. Well, we need to get back to civil society and back engaged in our own communities. We can't leave it to the government to do it. We can't leave it to, the, to just the nonprofits to do it. We all need to be engaged because these are our communities. And they're only going to be as good as our own engagement in it. So there's lots of these that if you go to Interface Sensi, uh, org, you'll find lots of organizations there because uh, they're there. If you go to Equation, you'll find lots of them there. If you go to Green Umbrella, you'll find lots of them there. Find your issues and become involved because the more we all do that, the better our community is for all of us. 
That's great advice. We've talked a lot about some heavy things, some injustices, and we always like to end on a little bit of a lighter note. You're a, a, a transplant to Cincinnati, but you've been here for quite a while. So you probably have some opinions about Cincinnati chili. So do you have a favorite Cincinnati chili? <laughs> yeah, I'm a vegetarian, so I've never had it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> but, Solves but, that problem. But, but the very idea of cinnamon in it is a little disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But uh, well, but I do, I do want to say about what I would say about Cincinnati. I've had a lot of opportunities to leave Cincinnati in my 20 years. And one of the things that I think is very hopeful about Cincinnati is that it's it's a large enough city that there's everything you can imagine going on all the time. And it's a small enough city that you can know everybody from the CEOs to the people, the street people in, in over the Rhine. And, 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 the, and the truth is that because of that, if you can figure out ways to be connective tissue, to, to sort of be those bridges, you can bridge that CEO to the people that are living on the streets. And, and once we begin to do that, that becomes a powerful, powerful force within our community. And so, you know, Cincinnati has, has accomplished things. Since Site Magazine uh, named uh, Cincinnati in 2018, 2019, when they were still, while they were still doing this, as the number one sustainable metropolitan area in the United States. The number one. And I mean, so there's a lot of stuff going on. People need to get involved with it. The, we, we, we have become a model city for interfaith work. We have become a model city for refugee work. Go find your issue and get involved. Cincinnati is a great place to do it. It's a great place to raise your family. And the thing that will keep it a great place to raise your family is if we all work together to make the city better for everybody. That's right. Well, that's a wonderful, beautiful note to end on. Dr. James Buchanan, thank you so much for your time today and uh, just sharing this inspirational message with you. Blessings on your work as you continue to collaborate to bring about a more just Cincinnati. So thank you. enjoyed our podcast today, we'd so very much appreciate you subscribing, reviewing, and sharing our podcast. This will help more people find us and join the movement. And if you're able to support this podcast and the work we do, please head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash justcincinnati. We're grateful for your support in amplifying the voices of those bringing about a more just Cincinnati. Our theme music for Just Cincinnati was generously provided by the internationally renowned but locally based singer and songwriter Kim Taylor. More of her intimate and folksy music can be found on her website at kim-taylor.net or wherever quality music is streamed. <laughs>